Psalms chapter 59. Psalms chapter 59, if you follow the church on Facebook, then you would uh, probably have seen over the lunch hour that we posted. I'm getting a little bit of a ring. I don't know if that's up here or where that's at or if you're hearing that out there. It's no big deal if you're not hearing it out there. Um, but uh, I, uh, I posted just a little bit of a preview of what this series is going to be about. And uh, we're titling it Praying Through. We're going to talk about 14 uh, different prayers of David in the book of Psalms. Prayers um, that show us that David didn't just pray about things. He certainly just didn't pray around things or against things. He prayed through things in his life. Things like guilt and things like shame and things like vulnerability and things like humiliation. And what we're going to talk about tonight in Psalms chapter 59 is how David prayed through betrayal. It's my heart, um, at least probably the rest of this year, on Wednesday nights, even once we divide up and go back into the kids' ministries in September, it's my heart to really give some focus in the midweek service to this subject of prayer. I think that, that one thing that, that we ought to be really, 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 really good at as Christians and as the church is prayer. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard in prayer to stay fresh. It's hard in prayer to not get repetitious. It's hard in prayer to not just skip a day or two. It's hard in prayer to not just pray when we really need something and that's about it. Um, and it's easy, it's easy for the church corporately to sing. And it's easy for, for, the, for the church corporately to fellowship. Um, but it's not as easy for the church sometimes to corporately pray. And so I, I kind of want, if God will let us, I, I, as he leads, I, I want to begin to shift some focus in our midweek service on the subject of prayer. And I want us as a church, I want, I want this to be called a house of prayer. I want these altars to, I want it to be comfortable for you to come to an altar. I want the culture of this place to be a place of prayer. Where if at any moment I stop a service and I say, I need three men to pray, that three men will stand up and pray. I mean, I want us to be that confident in prayer, that habitual in prayer, that purposeful in prayer. And I, I think the means by which we're going to do that is our Wednesday night service. And so we're going to start with this idea of praying through betrayal. Psalms 59 in my Bible doesn't start with verse 1. How about yours? It actually starts with the heading above verse 1. And in my Bible, the heading says this, To the chief musician, Altasheth, Mictum of David, when Saul sent, and they watched the house to kill him. If that's in your Bible, raise your hand. All right? Okay, so just about everybody has that heading. What does that mean? It means that this psalm is connected to a real-life story for David. David's a psalmist, and, and he wrote this psalm based on something that happened in his life. And if you trace back, uh, you will find that this story took place in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Now, instead of us going back to 1 Samuel 19 and reading that, I actually want to borrow the words of an author by the name of John Kitchen, who I'm indebted to for this entire series. And he, he kind of gave us the story of 1 Samuel 19 
in his own words. I want to read it to you, but you've got to follow along with me. If you like narratives, if you like stories, then it'll be easy for you. If you don't like history, then you might have to work harder. So everybody tune in. John, Arthur says, or John Kitchen says this. A nervous puff of breath enveloped the flame dancing above the oil lamp, extinguishing it and blanketing the room in darkness. In the still blackness, two huddled forms struggled to silence their breathing and wrestle their fears into submission. Silently, David raised himself along the wall toward the second floor window. As he slipped behind the curtain and leveled his eyes over the sill, he whispered just loud enough for his wife, Michael, to hear, They're out there. He couldn't see them, but he knew his words were true. He slowly turned his back to the wall and slumped to the floor in dejected confusion. His wife crawled across the floor to join him. They sat in silence for several minutes, staring together at some indefinite point in the darkness. Finally, she broke the trance. What happened, David? Moments before she had been quietly tending to household chores when the door had flown open and her husband screamed, Get down, Michael! As he plunged into blinding darkness, the only words that came to David's lips were, It's your father. Enough said. Michael knew exactly what he meant. More silence. More staring. Finally, she asked, another spear? Yes. Why? Why did he do it the first time? Who knows? It's the evil spirit, I guess. Michael broke another extended silence by asking, what now, David? There came no answer. There was not one to give, at least not one to waste a breath to explain. But their minds were working overtime. Why would her father, the king, want to kill his most loyal subject, his most faithful warrior, and his own son-in-law? They both joined to full attention, or jolted to full attention, as a sound at the bottom of the stairs shattered their stupor. Shaking herself out of her confusion, Michael took her husband's hand, or took her husband's head in her hands, and with nose nearly touching nose, said in as emphatic a voice as he'd ever heard her use, David, if you don't escape with your life tonight, my dad will kill you. David knew she was right. The soldiers could be heard collecting themselves on the floor below. Groping through the darkness, Michael grabbed up every loose pair of cloth that she could find. She knotted one piece to another until she had a suitable length of rope. David tied it off inside the room and leapt to the window. He paused, turned, and took his wife in his arms. Neither knew how long that embrace would have to last. He felt her hair, kissed her lips, and whispered his love to her. And just like that, David was back at the window and down the rope. Michael peered out the window and watched her husband streak for cover in the nearby trees. David had been betrayed by Saul. His own father-in-law, his boss, the man he served by playing a harp and soothing his spirit when he was down, and the man that he killed a giant for when nobody else would. And at some point while on the run and feeling this pain of betrayal, David wrote Psalms 59. There is nothing quite as painful as being betrayed. And I think the reason why 
is because it involves someone you love and it involves someone you once trusted. John Kitchen, you'll hear me quote him all through this series. He writes, giving the gift of trust almost unavoidably leads to receiving the curse of betrayal at some point. Some in here have received the curse of betrayal before. Maybe some in here right now are dealing with it, betrayed by a parent, betrayed by a child, betrayed by a sibling, an in-law, a spouse, a trusted friend, a co-worker, a company you worked for for years, a church, a mentor, a teacher, or a coach. I got to thinking that maybe I should, I should write up and explain some hypothetical scenarios so that your mind's eye will be able to picture what it looks like for God's people to, to, to uh, be betrayed by, by people they love. But, but then I thought for a moment, I don't have to do that. Because the pain of betrayal is so deep that when I say the word betrayal, your mind instantly goes to the one that betrayed you. To the situation that is applicable for your life. So then what are we supposed to do when we're betrayed? Well, I submit to you that we should pray. David shows us we don't pray about it. We don't pray around it. We don't pray over it or against it. We pray through betrayal. But here's the tough thing with betrayal. It makes us feel like we can't pray. Here's why. Because prayer and trust are two inseparable links. Isn't it right that when you pray, you're trusting God? And the last thing you want to do after being betrayed is trust anybody. I mean, intellectually, most of us know God won't betray us. But the throbbing ache of yesterday's betrayal makes us hesitant to find out if he will. That's why I love Psalms 59. Because David shows us what it looks like to pray through betrayal, even though his pain was attempting to distort his view of God and destroy his trust in God. He opens the psalm by laying bare the pain he felt from being betrayed. Look at the first four verses. Deliver me from mine enemies, oh my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me and behold. Now there are several things that we can pick up on in these four verses that indicate the pain that David was feeling. Thankfully, and I love this about David, he wasn't afraid to be open with God about what he was feeling. That's why I love the Psalms. The humanity in them just drips off the pages like David was so real. He was so raw, which gives us permission to be real and raw with God. We can lay bare the pain before God that is in our heart and in our mind. But as I examine those, four verse, those first four verses, I, I get a glimpse into perhaps what David was feeling about God. Because the first two verses make me think that maybe David thought God was inactive. The pain of being betrayed made him think that the God he was praying to was inactive. Because if you look at the first two verses, you hear like these, these abrupt, hasty imperatives. Deliver me. Defend me. Deliver me. Save me. He, he, he almost sounded like an ER doctor. Barking out orders to the medical staff around him as they, as they fight for the life of the one lying before them. But this time the life is David's own. 
There's no one at his disposal but God. And in the darkness of betrayal, David isn't even so sure about God. And basically he said, Lord, I need action. And I need it right now. It's almost like his crying out to God to do something implies that he thought God was doing nothing. I think he might have also felt like God was blind because at the end of verse 4, he said, God, behold. That word can be translated to see. He's asking God, would you just open your eyes and look upon my situation? Have you ever had the sense that God must be blind? (laughs) I I didn't ask yourself if you believe that he's blind. You know he's not. But your reality and your pain seem so obvious to you. Why doesn't it seem as obvious to God in the moment? And then verse 4, I think, indicates that David could also feel like God was asleep because in verse 4 and in verse 5, he asked God to wake up. Think about this. The thing David was being deprived of as he was hiding from Saul's men and the thing Saul's men were depriving themselves of as they were chasing down David was sleep. And that was the very thing he is kind of accusing God of indulging in. He was saying, in essence, God, the only one getting any sleep around here is you. Would you please wake up to my situation? So... Here's David, on the run from Saul, feeling betrayed by Saul. And the pain of that human betrayal is threatening to distort his view of God. God, I feel like you're inactive. I feel like you're blind. I feel like you're asleep. And that's what betrayal does. The pain can be so deep that it threatens to obscure what you know is true about your God. John Kitchen again says, the dark night of betrayal plays tricks on the eyes of our heart. We know, don't we, that God isn't inactive? We know, don't we, that God isn't blind? We know He's not asleep, but we don't always feel that way. Which is why we must choose to do what David did. We must pray through. Doesn't mean we can't can't lay bare... And in the open and be honest with God about the pain that we're feeling like David was. But at some point in our prayer, we must take a shift. And we must choose to pray through the pain that is causing us to doubt what we know is true about the Lord. And and that's what prayer does so often for us. It's an act of the will in which despite the pain, we lay hold again of that which we know to be reality. We may not feel like it's reality, but by faith we assert that it is. And so in prayer, here's what we're doing. We're dogmatically refusing to let go of what we know despite all the arguments of our feelings. Unfortunately, in our world, feelings are the ultimate truth. Now seriously, our culture says to think and to act or choose contrary to your current emotions is to be false, it's to be fake, it's to be inauthentic. I think it's one of the greatest sins of our, of our secular culture. But the child of God must recognize that this is a seductive attitude and we must fight it off in prayer. We must refuse to let go of objective truth even in the midst of betrayal. That's what David did. So for the remainder of our study, we'll we'll find he shifted his perspective in verse 5. And here's what happens. Pay attention to this. In verses 5 through 17, God's character is now set in contrast 
to all of David's troubles that he mentioned in verses 1 through 4. So David is going to teach us that the answer to all the confusion about God's whereabouts and God's character and God's activity in the midst of betrayal is to remember who God is. And David recalled two truths about who God is. In verse 5 he teaches us God is in control. Look at verse 5. I love this shift. He instantly calls God by a name. Thou therefore, for, O Lord God of hosts. Study this with me. The words Lord is the covenant name Yahweh. It points to God's self-existence. It, it points to God's faithfulness as God of hosts, the Lord God of hosts. He is the God of armies, both of the Israelite army, who were, humanly speaking, under Saul's command, and of the angelic host of heaven. Now, now follow this, church, because imagine how rich this name for God must have been to David at this time. Because this name meant that those lying in wait for him, Saul's men, were not ultimately Saul's army, and they weren't David's future army. They were God's. God was their commander-in-chief. And he also noted in verse 5 that he was under the care of the God of Israel. In other words, Israel was God's nation, not Saul. It was God's kingdom, not David's. God owned the nation that Saul was clinging to and the one David had been anointed to lead. Then go down to verse 13. Sometimes we've got to do this in the Psalms. We've got to skip and come back. Look at the last part of verse 13. And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob under the ends of the earth. God is the ruler. God is the real king over all kings. In other words, David is saying this. The pain of my betrayal makes me believe that God is blind and inactive and asleep. I recall in my mind by willful faith that God is still in control. That is called the sovereignty of God. Now we know intellectually that God is in control, don't we? But how often does the pain of betrayal cause us to not feel that way? I mean, how can God be in control and my child break my heart? How can God be in control and, and my parents let me down? How can God be in control and my spouse leave me? How can God be in control and a friend I gave my trust who stabs me in the back? How can a, a God be in control that loves me and yet a company I give myself to for two decades turns their back on me and lays me off? I wish I could answer all those questions for you. But I can't because I'm not God. But here's what David has taught us. Truly believing that he is sovereign and in control takes a measure of faith. It takes a willful choosing to embrace God's sovereignty even though everything around you points to just the opposite. Unless you think that that's impossible to do, let me remind you that you exercise that measure of faith every day. Maybe not every day, I guess, but you, you, you exercise a measure of faith in things you can't control, understand, or grasp on a regular basis. You know that. You understand, you don't understand, rather, how, how that a surgeon can open up your heart, your chest, and have open heart surgery, sew you back, and you recover and you not die. Tell me, how does that happen? How do you lay on a bed, get cut open, and live? You don't understand all that, but if you had a heart attack and you had to be rushed to a hospital, 
you would lay on that bed without understanding or even meeting that surgeon. You would get into a 747 aircraft, not understanding how you go 40,000 feet in the air and not die. And you don't ever have to meet the pilot before you get in there. I say we're capable of exercising our faith, a willful choosing into things of life of great consequence without understanding it. And we have to do the same with some attributes of God. In the pain of betrayal, it's hard to grasp how he's still in control. But you have to choose to do it. David was willingly laying hold of the truth about God. He's the Lord. He's the Lord God of hosts. He's the God of Jacob. He's in charge. He's in control. And I'm going to trust that. Yeah. But he didn't stop there. The majority of the psalm is actually focusing on one more truth about God. And it's this. God is our protector. Now I want to read to you two sets of verses in the psalm that look to be identical. Verses 6 and 7. And verses 14 and 15. Look at your Bible. David says, they return at Eden. Who's they? That's Saul's men that are hunting him down. They make a noise, a dog. See, I don't like dogs. And go round about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. (laughs) Swords are in their lips. For who say they doth hear? Go to verse 14. And at evening, let them return and let them make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they be not satisfied. David is describing his enemies. How many have ever seen the movie Lady and the Tramp? Y'all, you've never seen Lady and the Tramp? The graphics aren't good enough for you, let me, let, let me guess. They were amazing. I love that movie. I asked my wife over supper, tonight. I said, you remember Lady and the Tramp? Just take a wild guess what the first scene she says that she remembers that Lady and the Tramp. Spaghetti. She loves to kiss. I tell you what. You know, you know the one I remember is the one where Lady was getting that, uh, that collar that, that uh, I don't know what you call those collars. The muzzle. That's right. Whatever. And she got scared and ran off, and she ended up running to a bad part of town and got cornered by the mean dogs, and they show their teeth. Man, I remember when I was watching that, I, I, I was like an Amish kid in the electronic department of Walmart. I, I, I mean, you couldn't budge me. I, I was like, whoa, man, this is amazing. Um, and then I would have nightmares that night from seeing their teeth and, and, and all of that. And, and that's kind of the picture I have. Of, of what David is saying about his enemies. Like they're prowling. And he says they return. They keep coming back. It's like David feels cornered by these really, really mean dogs. And that's scary. But after each set of those verses where he describes his enemy, he gives another set of verses that describes God as his protector. So his enemy is real, but his God is real too. Look at verse 8. But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Now, what, is, what does this mean? Well, the attack of David's enemies was met with the laughter of God. It's as though God is chuckling at the thought of David's enemies being stronger than his protection over David. That, that, that somebody would actually be able to thwart God's sovereignty and purpose to make David the next king of Israel was actually laughable to God. You get that? 
and that the betrayal you've experienced threatens to thwart God's purpose for your life is laughable to him as well. Nobody that turns their back on you, stabs you in the back, leaves you, deals with you wrongfully. In the moment you feel like they have just derailed you from God's plan for your life, there's no more going forward. And God is up in heaven sovereignly laughing at their attempt. Look at verse 9. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. I love love the study here because that word translated wait is the same one we find in the psalm in that heading that I started the message with when it says when Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. Same exact word there. Here's the point. What, What Saul's men did toward David, David was doing toward God. David said, I'm waiting on God. I'm watching for God's protection because my God is strong, he says. Are you studying the Bible with me, distracted? Because he said, my God is strong. He was confident that of God's ability to defend him, verse 9. Because of his strength will I wait on him. I think of that. David is so confident in God's protection and God's defense. is like a picture of a little boy who's confident in his father's defense. And his father's protection. I mean, you know, I don't know at what point you actually come to a conclusion as a little boy that your dad can't beat up everybody. But it's like a good 16 years at least. I mean, for me, I was about 13 when I realized my dad couldn't. I was kidding. He's pretty strong. But, you know, as little boys, you really believe that as long as you're with your dad, for some reason, nobody can beat him up. I'll go down any alley. I don't care how dark it is. I don't care how many dogs there are. Now, if I'm by myself, no. If if I'm with a friend's dad, no. If I'm with my dad, I'm good. I'm good. I'm safe. And I think that's what David's saying. My father, my God, he's strong. And in the midst of betrayal, I'm weak. I'm defenseless. I need somebody. I'm vulnerable. I'm glad I have a God that is strong. He's my protector. Look at verse 10 and 13. Another good truth. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon my enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be and let them know that God ruleth in Jacob and the ends of the earth. Did you see that phrase in verse 10? God shall prevent me. He's talking about a proactive part of God's protection. So he just talked about God being a defense or a fortress. That is a still protection. That is a protection that we we can fall behind. And that's a protection that we can sit still and be confident that nobody can penetrate those walls. Nobody, Nobody can penetrate that defense. But this is a proactive measure. He said it's like a shield. God's protection goes before us. Now, a question may arise about this portion of the psalm where David is literally praying for the destruction of his enemies. Have you ever asked why he does that? They're called imprecatory psalms. I think I'm going to preach a series on those psalms and tell you the purpose of them. But to sum it up, David's prayer for the destruction of his enemies was actually a statement of faith and trust in God as his protector. I don't think David is being vindictive in the sense of anger. 
He was acknowledging by faith God's ability and willingness to protect him. And God did. My question is this. How was David so confident that God would protect him in this case? He was so outnumbered. He was so weak, so vulnerable. How could he be so confident as to write a song about it? Verse 16. But I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. I want you to watch this. David said in verse 16, thou hast been my defense and refuge. He said in verse 17, God is my defense. David could assert God's protection as a present fact because it had been past experience. Here's the point. What David needs God to be in the present, his protector, is the very thing God has proven to be in the past. I would say it this way. Faith measures current circumstances according to God's past faithfulness. Here's what I found to be true, that the pain of betrayal can obscure that record of God's past faithfulness in our life. That's why through prayer we have to refuse to, to let go of who God has been because that will give us faith to know who he will continue to be. You think David's mind went back to when he was at the pasture and a bear came and a lion came and God helped him to defeat those animals? Do you think David's mind went back to that day when he faced that giant Goliath and nobody else would and he took a stone and he threw it at his head and with one shot he killed him? It wasn't because David was some super maniac strong dude. It wasn't because that rock had superpowers, other than God's power, I guess. I'm just trying to say David wasn't like maybe a professional slinger as much as he served a powerful God. And in the moments of betrayal, he didn't let that pain and that distortion of who God is rob him of what God had done in his life up to that point. Listen, you have to learn as Christians to recall past history with God. Did he provide for you yesterday? He'll provide for you today. Did he encourage you yesterday? He'll encourage you today. Did he listen to you yesterday? He'll listen to you today. Did he send a friend your way at just the right time yesterday? He'll send a friend your way at just the right time today. That is God's way of protecting you. He is your shield that goes before you. He is your defense and your fortress that goes around you. And I love that. I know that when you're betrayed, one of the hardest things to do is pray. Because your view of God will instantly be distorted. You'll feel vulnerable and you'll not want to trust anybody, including your heavenly Father. But what you must do is what David did. Pray through. Pray through. Don't get off your knees. Don't leave your prayer closet until you have followed the example of Psalms 59. Praying through doesn't just mean praying verses 1 through 4 and telling God how you feel. That's not praying through betrayal. That's a great introduction into the prayer. But praying through is deeper than that. 
praying through is turning from honesty with God to praise and to acknowledgement and recall of who God is. Can I give you one more observation in closing? In verse 9, would you look at it in your Bible? David said, I will wait upon thee. Look down at verse 16. He says, I will sing. Now, I can't take credit for this observation, but it's a great way to close the psalm because James Montgomery Boyce said this. Look at the screen. In the Hebrew, the words wait and sing are identical except for one letter, which is a way of saying, I suppose, that keeping one's eyes on God is only a stroke away from singing his praises and otherwise rejoicing in him. As we pray through the pains of life, no one discipline is more essential than that of keeping God accurately and squarely before the eyes of our hearts and do so again and again in faith. With him there, reality begins to come into focus again. Rest returns to our hearts, and hope rends the dark veil of betrayal's pain. Then we can't help but sing. At the end of every one of these messages, I'm going to give you a suggested pattern of prayer according to the psalm we just studied. So tonight's will be called the Psalm 59 Prayer. I'm going to invite you tonight to come and pray this prayer. I'm going to invite you to write these bullet points down so that when you are betrayed, and you will be, if you're going to, if you're going to trust somebody in this life, ultimately you're inviting the pain of betrayal in your life as well. And when you are betrayed, I hope you will take time to pray through Psalms 59. Here it is. Number one, recount the pain of betrayal you feel. That's, that's the first four verses. In other words... You, you need to name the person. You need to express the emotion. You need to tell the ways, God, the ways that you're tempted to see him as inactive or, or blind or asleep in your situation. After you've done that, take a turn and recount the attributes of God as listed in this psalm. What are they? He's in control and he's your protector. After you've done that, affirm to God that your eyes are on him, just like David did. You're waiting on him. You're watching for him instead of your pain or betrayer. In other words, watch, why is that an important step? Because you are not going to be able to get your mind off of the one that betrayed you. I mean, it'll plague you. It'll plague you until you're able to go through the full process of forgiveness your mind will be dominated when you go to bed at night, when you wake up, when you see him at Walmart, when you see him on Facebook. Your mind will be dominated by the one that disappointed you. And so you must continually go back and pray the third step. Affirm to God, I'm getting my eyes off of my betrayer and off of my pain. I'm getting them on you. And then you know what you need to do? Sing a song of confident faith. That's how David ended the prayer. He says, I'm going to sing. It started with him thinking God was blind, inactive, and asleep. And it ended by saying, I'm going to sing. That's what prayer does. If you stay at it long enough. Not if you just, if you only take time to pray for your food. Not if the only time you, you pray is at the altar once a week. But if you learn how to grind it out. You learn how to pray through when you're tired. How to pray through when you're busy. How to pray through when your mind won't shut down. If you will just learn how to grind it out in the prayer closet. You will eventually get to a verse 17 where you can say, I will sing. And you must make that choice. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask whoever's doing an invitation to come to the piano. And we're going to play through 
By him, great is thy faithfulness. And, and then, as they play, I, I want you to come and pray. God has spoken to your heart. Maybe you're experiencing betrayal. Maybe you want to pray for somebody that you know is. Maybe you want to ask God to help you recall these truths whenever you do face betrayal in the future. So let's spend a moment at the altar in prayer. And then when we're done, we're going to go back to our seats. We're going to all stand. And we're going to sing a song of confident faith. And we're going to sing, great is thy faithfulness. We're going to declare that when our human relationships are unfaithful, our divine relationship is always faithful. And we're going to, we're going to sing that with confident faith. If you agree with that, say amen.